This podcast has been commissioned by the Office of the Chief Psychiatrist of South Australia. It is part of a proactive and impactful series of activities being undertaken across the state as part of the South Australian Suicide Prevention Plan 2017-2021. to Their focus of making people a priority, empowering communities and translating evidence into practice underpins this amazing program of works. At its heart are the voices of lived experience, people from South Australia empowering others and making the saving of South Australian lives their priority. This is one of those stories. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, I'm Lane Stretton, delighted to bring you this podcast today. Growing up in this country hasn't been easy for many people that have settled into a new way of life in Australia. Our guest, Roma, is going to talk to us about that experience and the experience of losing her brother to suicide. She felt like she didn't belong, a feeling that has developed a passion for our First Nations people and their treatment. She is passionate about helping people to belong in their community and to understand what it feels like to be othered. She's going to help us to understand how important belonging and inclusiveness is for all human beings. Have a listen to Roma's story. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio today. I'm in Adelaide and with me in the Roses Radio studio is Roma. Welcome to Roses Radio. Hi. Fantastic to have you with us. When I use the expression otherness, what does that conjure up for you? Otherness, yeah. Um, I reckon that most people have an experience of otherness, but it is a concept that we don't really talk about a lot unless you move in certain circles. So otherness, um, it is a concept, an academic concept, but it's about exclusion. It's about how people work, um, societies work, um, groups work, um, and set up norms, like this is the way we have to do things. This is the way we're going to go about things. Um, and anybody who, or groups who don't look right, don't behave in, in the way that the norm is set, 
is often excluded. Um, mm. And there are good reasons for that, particularly, you know, violence, etc. But I'm more interested around issues of identity and otherness and how that is actually implicated in suicide uh, prevention and how I think um, it's largely absent in the discussion. So um, I'm interested in um, pursuing it a little bit further and, and pushing the boundaries around it. I guess we can all be others. In one context, we can be part of the in crowd. In another context, we can be completely on the, the outside and feel very excluded from uh, mainstream environment or the, the social environment that we aspire to be a part of. Has that been uh, a part of your upbringing? So your interest in this is really connected back into your, um, to your experience growing up and particularly the loss of your brother. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about him as a person and how long ago did you lose him to suicide? Okay, so um, we lost him to suicide quite a long time ago, really, in the grand scheme of things, so 1990. He was 16, um, came out of left field for us, um, and, um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. It was four days after a family wedding, my sister's um, wedding, and so the flowers of the wedding were just as fresh as the flowers of the funeral in the end, so within 10 days there was a wedding and a funeral, so it was really quite um, traumatic. Um, traumatic as all these situations are because of the the lost potential. I think for a long time I felt the futility of his loss, the futility of a lost potential, you know, that he was so, from my perspective, um, so vibrant, um, had the world ahead of him and yet he made this decision which for me was, you know, I didn't think he had that in him. He was kind of like the most sensitive person that I've ever known. Um, so it was a big shock that he would actually be violent to himself. So he was um, quite a character. He and I were kindred spirits. A lot of people would say that. He was younger than me. Um, and so he's my baby brother. But we looked alike. So I was almost like the female version of him. He was the you know male version of me, I suppose. Um, and we had similar interests around music and around literature. Like, we are both creative. Um, he was a proficient musician, so played the piano, which was my interest. So it's through my interest that he then developed that further. So he was a, a sensitive, gentle soul who loved cats, who, um, yeah, extremely sensitive um, and... I suppose, was someone who was quite introverted, you know, um, loved football. I like football. We barrack for the same team, go Port Power. Um, yeah, he, he was just a lovely individual and I could just, I still grieve, you know, the adult he would have been, mm. yeah. You talked um, once before about it being more than just a sibling connection, that when he passed away, you had some really interesting experiences that occurred. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Oh, about um, somehow knowing yeah. what was going on mm. without knowing, not being there. Yeah. Mm. So um, it's taken me nearly 30 years to actually talk about this. And the first time I've, I've risked talking about it for fear of people uh, probably thinking that um, you know, she's lost the plot, um, meant that um, I received really positive responses, so um, I'm happy to share that. So when we go to the day um, of his death, um, I recall it um, most particularly because um, 
I was sitting, um, I was doing some professional development, I was an early career teacher, and I was sitting um, absolutely in my element, listening to a theologian talk about this new theory of science and religion coming together, so quantum physics and theology coming together and and realising that um, everything is interconnected and interdependent and interrelated, so everything in the cosmos, all of creation is interconnected like this massive intricate web and that, you know, I remember his statement, we are made of stardust, all of us are made of stardust, so the the atoms are in the the stars are in within us, and I would like my mind was literally being blown, and I was a bit frustrated because this was so much better than I was expecting, and I had to leave um, early because um, because of the wedding, um, my braces need to come back on, so they had been taken off so that I looked nice in the photos. I was a bridesmaid. And so I had to go back to the orthodontist and, and leave early because if I didn't, then the, the teeth would start moving and I wasn't going to have those braces on any longer than they needed to be. So I remember looking at the time and it, it was about noon and, and I was thinking, oh, I've only got, you know, half an hour left of this. What a shame that I, I can't stay for the, the afternoon session. Um, and then I was aware of the time again. And the time was around about just after 20 past 12, close to 25 past 12. And what was odd in that is that we've all done that, looked at the clock, was that nothing had happened to me during that period. I looked around the room. Clearly the lecturer had moved on. I looked at the notes of people around me. They had written notes. I looked down at my notes because I was frantically, you know, writing. Nothing had happened. I had been somewhere. I, it was a big blank. It was like, you know, when you go and have an operation, you, when you wake up, it really was like that. I knew I had been somewhere. Every, everybody else had moved on, but I don't know. I was there physically. I don't know where I was. It was so weird. And that was followed up immediately by intense illness, like really violent illness. So I... I have not had that experience since where I was violently ill, just had to rush to the, the toilets as it were and, you know, sweating profusely, violently ill. Um, and I was shaking. I'm thinking, what is going on? I am really not well here. You know, I am losing it. And it was really unusual. For the remainder of the afternoon, there were two other things that happened to me. Um, and so that meant, without going into you know, enormous detail, it meant that the theme of death um, was before me. So at the orthodontist, uh, there was a young girl whose father had suddenly died. And um, I was listening in thinking, oh, we're going to know what that's like soon because my mother had terminal ca um, cancer and, and she was um, meant to die soon. So I thought, oh, we're going to be in the same place. You know? So I was thinking about death. Um, and I was feeling low, still very unwell. Um, and there'd also been something I, I was avoiding. I found myself avoiding going home. And, um, and I was in, the, in a shop and I was buying scarves. I hate scarves. I really don't use them a lot. I use them more now, but back then I didn't really like scarves. And I was just aware that I was in this shopping centre and I was tired and totally unwell and looking at my hands and thinking, I've just bought a book about how to tie scarves, a scarf pin, a silver one, which, you know, obviously was a bit expensive, 
and a whole bunch of scarves and I hate scarves. What the hell is going on and why am I standing here in this shop? I need to go home. Why am I avoiding going home? So long story short, I went home. And when I went home, um, I noticed that there were lots of cars there and I was still living with my parents at that point. And um, my uncles were at the front and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my uncles are here. Okay, the wedding celebrations continue. So I'm waving at them with a great big smile and they turn around and my dad and my uncle look at me and they gave me the look. And I knew, oh my God, something's gone wrong. They're not here to celebrate. And I just immediately thought, my God, mum's gone. So, okay, Roma, brace yourself, brace yourself. So I parked the car to see my dad running at me, running at the car, and he was distraught. And he was speaking in Calabrian, which is really unusual because it's been quite a long time that we hadn't been speaking that language because we kind of were told we weren't allowed to. Um, and so he's speaking to me in Calabrian and what I'm hearing, I'm hearing not all the information or I'm hearing what I want to hear. So I'm hearing him saying, your brother's been killed because that mirrored these dreams I'd been having. I'd been having these dreams um, in the weeks prior to his passing of him dying, dying but through a car accident. He, he was in his school uniform, but he was dying in a car accident that happened on the side of our road. We lived on the corner of our road. Um, and so he died near the shed, which was a converted study in, in my dreams. It was like he was run over by a bus, of all things. And so when he was telling me that, I still vividly remember it, my, my head went to, oh, those dreams. So I said, oh, so how did the bus run him over? He said, what are you talking about? And then he said to me, he's taken his own life. Um, and that's when the reality set. And so um, I immediately heard the feeling of going into shock. There was a sound in my body. Um, and I walked in to see the devastation of my grandparents and my mother, totally hysterical. And I was to find out um, through asking her questions a little bit later about what had happened. So the story is that he'd gone to school as usual and I had kind of talked to him earlier that morning. And um, he'd come home. He'd left school. He'd left the school grounds. And he had um, come home at um, halfway through the day. My mum said to him, what are you doing home? So I'm not feeling well. I'm, I, I thought I'd leave school earlier. She invited him to have lunch. And he said, no, 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 I've got some study to do. He was in year 12. Okay, fine, she said, if that's, you know, if that's okay. And so off he went into the study, into the converted shed. And... Um, then the school rang because by then they were concerned because he had been seen leaving. He, there's a story around people being aware of what was going on. Um, but they'd waited a long time, obviously, to uh, notify my mum. And so she picked up the phone. They just said, can you just check on him? And we're a bit concerned. So she was a bit amused. And she went and, and that's when she found him. And um, when I asked her what time it was, she said it was about quarter past 12. Um, so it's taken me a long time for me to get the meaning of that. Um, and it was only recently that I, I found some meaning. And it was only because I took the courage to speak to someone like only 10 weeks ago that as I was talking to her, I finally found a resolution to the horror 
that I was dealing with for such a long time about him being so violent to himself, but doing being alone in that room doing that. I couldn't cope with him being alone. Yes, we're spiritual and we say, you know, God is with you, Jesus is with you. And him, we're Italian, so spirituality is important. <clears throat> he had his Bible on his desk, you know. But physically, I, I just couldn't cope with him being so alone doing that. And it wasn't until, say, 10 weeks ago that as I was telling, I took the risk in telling someone this story that I worked out the meaning for me. I was with him. We're made from stardust in subliminal ways, in ways that we still don't understand because how else did I know? How else was I purchasing those things? How else was the time right? How else was I violently unwell? Somehow deep inside of me, I knew what was happening. I was avoiding it. I knew. And it's a great relief to me and comfort that I can make meaning and say somehow I was with him. He wasn't alone. Somehow I knew. Because at the end of the day, we are all interconnected. We're interrelated. We're all brother and sister. We're, we're just a collective community that belongs to each other. It wasn't long after that that you spoke to the school and that sense of otherness instead of connection, which you've just spent you know 10 minutes so beautifully um, outlining for us, you began to feel that sense of disconnection from the environment around you and also you know not only the school but also within your own culture can you just explore that a little bit more for us sure um immediately um i just knew without any of us saying it you know suicide was is such taboo and back in 1990 you know um it was extremely taboo uh, from society's uh, perspective in adelaide still very um um heard of perhaps silenced it didn't happen it certainly didn't happen in calabrian culture and we knew if it did it was um you know a great shame on the family so you know without getting into any detail i knew the horror that i was you know when i was looking at my grandparents and my parents and my aunties and uncles we were all going to be carrying this shame for generations to come i knew we were just suddenly down this path we would be othered as a consequence um, so that was there it was like this is horrific it goes against the rules of God like I said we were deeply spiritual and and there were people in my life including my poor godmother who spent so much time talk to, talking to me about the devil must be here in this family that I got really um, annoyed with her at one point said you know for a godmother you spent a hell of a lot of time talking about the devil to me in the last few days um, which shocked her, you know. And I can remember on our way to the funeral, somebody, this is bizarre, somebody opened the door. I think just as we arrived at the church, somebody opened the door and these um, Immaculate Heart of Mary medallions were thrown into um, into the, the car. And we just all looked at each other and were incredulous. I still have one of them. Um, and obviously people thought that evil somehow had come upon this family. And so we were carrying the weight of that as far as the school was concerned. Um, and I don't mean to be overly critical. This is just reflective of the taboo, I think, of, of suicide as well, that, you know, you just don't talk about it and you don't want to be connected with it. Um, and I'm being fairly generous here, but I think that needs to be said. 
So we always operate out of context, society, uh, beliefs and context. So um, when I found out that he'd come home from school, you know, I'm thinking, well, what the hell happened at school? So I got on the phone and said, I want to speak to the principal. The principal knew who I was because of, um, I was a teacher and of my profile. And um, he uh, got on the phone and I said, Martin, you know, what's happened? What the hell happened? Why did he leave school? Because that was an unusual thing for him to do. Um, and his initial response was, um, Roman, this has got nothing to do with a school and this has got everything to do with your family. That was his response. This is a priest. Um, you know, almost 30 years down the track, I, I understand and I can appreciate now the, the trauma the school was feeling, but there was a lot more to it than he was letting on. In fact, it had a hell of a lot to do with the school in the end and a hell of a lot to do with other people outside of the school institution. Um, you know, this issue touches all of us and there was stuff that was going on that we weren't aware of and we were to find out later, even after my mother's passing, which is tragic, about what was really going on and what was going on for my, my brother in his life and his sense of identity, which led him down this path. And so that was the first moment where your family were blamed, stigmatised as a result of the choice uh, that your brother made. But that was ongoing for a long period of time, wasn't it? What were some of the other things that your parents and your family had to experience that were unhelpful in this situation? I don't think this is unusual, but... Um People saying the wrong things, absolutely the wrong things. I don't understand why people would do that, but I, I think I can appreciate now that is um, they don't want to be associated with it, so they, they've got to position it outside of themselves. So, you know, close family members um, telling stories of dreams that I've had of, of my brother um, not being happy in the family, so already positioning the family. This is like the next day saying this to my mother who has cancer, who has terminal cancer. And that was a double blow also because we'd kept that quite quiet. And so in, in all of this, people were receiving news that, yes, my brother had died, but also that my mother was dying and was terminal. And, you know, that was going to be quite imminent. Um, so it was a double blow to the family. And I understand the shock, but still the lack of empathy, I think was about, I'm not going to be identified with this trauma. I'm not going to be identified with the stigma. So I'm going to place it back on you, which is how othering works. So some really unfortunate things were said, um, to us and to, to my mother in particular, you know, she found him, um, you know, the lack of sensitivity is just, um, you know, just so... Unfortunate, um, And in some ways, she went to her grave shortly afterwards, and, so, and that's possibly um, a relief because if you've had to wear some of that stuff for 30 more years, that would be really difficult. Um, the usual cultural um, ways of providing support to family um, in times of grief, I found, were suspended. I started to notice that 
the way that I was brought up when there was um, a family bereaved, you support each other through giving of food and, and drink and you basically take that to the family and there's these conversations that are held outside of the family by close relatives about who's bringing what at what time. So the family is supported um, when there's a bereavement through food and um, that goes on for a, a, certainly a period right up into the funeral um, and then there's a giving back by the family and I noticed within the first 24 hours that that was absent um, and look again you know I appreciate that people were in deep deep shock and the taboo around that um, but at the same time I knew well there's a different game being played here and I'm really annoyed um, so being a feisty young woman who was navigating the really difficult space of being a first generation Australian born Calabrian person. Um, you know, I had to opt in and opt out of those cultures. And so for me, I, I had the ability to stand back and see and interpret what was going on. So I could I could interpret that this is about the shame, I think. And so um, I was getting frustrated. These are my poor parents and the stuff that we grew up doing you know, just wasn't happening for my family. This was our turn. Where's the support? Where's my grandparents, you know, as, you know, patriarch and matriarch of the family? Well, what's going on here? And so I got a bit annoyed. I mean, it's a little bit funny. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, lunch has come and gone and there's nothing. So I'm going to have to prepare something. And, like, I really felt like preparing lunch for, you know, 50-odd people. Not. So, um... I went to the freezer. I'm a good cook. I, was, I, I knew how to cook. And I went to the freezer, grabbed a frozen chicken and uh, put a pan on the, the stove and basically just out of my frustration lobbed, because I used to play netball and I used to be goalie, lobbed perfectly this frozen chicken <laughs> into this pan. And you can imagine, imagine the noise. Imagine the noise. Yeah. yeah, imagine the noise. <laughs> I could see, I recall my auntie just being shocked because mm -hmm. in, in a wake you, you're kind of quite quiet and then in this particular wake it was very quiet, interspersed by my mother's hysterical screaming and then I was the only one that could quieten her down by the looks of things. So then I'd have to go and, Ma, that's enough now, just quieten down. It's not good for you, not good for everybody and she'd quieten down. So it was very quiet. So me, I just really disturbed the silence and just that symbolic act kind of shocked my auntie and she, what are you doing? And so quite loudly I said, well, somebody's got to feed my parents and my grandparents because it ain't happening. And so she kind of worked with me. So we actually prepared that meal. It, it really, that meal should have been prepared for her too. Um, and then even then, this is just me being a little bit critical, I suppose, probably a little bit unfair. My interpretation of the food that was provided to us was second rate. We didn't get the cooked meals. Um, we didn't get the the cakes and the we got what I would call just quick um, convenient meals which shocked me which um, I think was about shock but also about othering and then the, the shame. Does othering still exist today? In, oh absolutely. In your yeah tell yeah. me tell me where you've either seen that or experienced it or how do you think othering exists in a suicide or mental health context? Uh, from a family point of view? Whichever point of view. Oh, look, my, my father passed away, again, rather tragically, um, in 2016, just before he passed away. Um, 
there was a relative who wanted to come and see him and she'd been pestering the, the nursing home. And so they'd spoke to me and I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I don't know who she is, but she was connected to this, to someone who said something quite unfortunate to my mother. And I noticed that this person, when she walked into the room, I noticed that my father, although he had suffered a significant stroke, he could still communicate non-verbally and even though he was classified as having dementia because he couldn't talk, he, he had his wits about him most of the time. And I noticed his behaviour. He wasn't happy about this woman being in the room. And we were always open about um, my brother, Enzo, um, and we on my dad's side table was a picture of my mum and a picture of my, my brother, a photo, which he had at his home and I brought in. Um, and... She looked at the photo of my brother and just looked at me and gave me that look. Oh, this family. And I thought, are you kidding me? You are kidding me? It's over 25 years and I'm still wearing this? And I didn't say anything to her. I just looked at her and this is what's going on in my head. And I just looked at her and she must have non-verbally picked up my signal like, no, not okay. And she excused herself and somehow I had respectfully said, you have crossed a boundary. Um, and she excused herself and she left the room. And one of the um, carers came into the room and said, how did you get rid of her? She, she does nothing but talk for two hours. I didn't go there. I didn't explain. I just said she knew it was time for her to leave. Mm -hmm. So that was quite confronting. I thought, gosh almighty, it's time we moved on. Um, the other ways, I think, this the whole area of suicide prevention and even the, the topic of suicide is still taboo. Although there's been some ground made, it's still taboo. And I worked in educational settings um, as a teacher and also as a leader and bureaucrat, I suppose people could call me. Um, really conscious, it was a no-go zone. It wasn't training. Um, it was just silenced. And I'm really troubled by silence. Um, and that's part of the problem. You know, and I want to speak out about it. Um, and so the silencing of it, um, for fear's sake, I think. I think it's about fear. There, you know, because there's this fear that if we talk about it, more kids are going to take their lives. Somehow they've they've stuck onto that particular fear. Uh, whereas I don't think it's necessarily backed up by research anymore. Like it's much more complex than that. It's the copycat side of things is not as prevalent as what we thought. And because we've stuck to that, because it's a lot easier to say, well, because of that, we're not going to talk about it, we have missed incredible opportunities to heal, incredible opportunities to possibly prevent suicide in more meaningful and effective ways because we have avoided, from my perspective, the issue of identity and othering, which I think is a common theme that is still untapped in this arena. So you have a real passion for um, the Indigenous community, our, our mm -hmm. First Nations people. Has that come about as a result of your experience of othering and a sense that we are disconnected from our history and our culture? Yeah, I think so. Um, look, you can't be a teacher and work in low socioeconomic you know, environments, I think, and work on the work with the fringes of society, which is what I did. I worked in the arenas and was interested in arenas of gender equity, social justice, and including Aboriginal education. And so othering is, you know, part of that story. Um, and 
It's about, you know, people who are on the margins of society. And, and to a certain extent, that's about my identity. I have lived a life feeling, and this is just the identity that I've formed, so I take ownership of that, feeling that I was always other. I didn't even fit in. I didn't feel I fitted in entirely with the Calabrian community, yet I feel safe in the, in the main there. I just wasn't your typical Calabrian woman, girl. You know, I was feisty. I was a tomboy. I just wasn't the girl I was supposed to be. Um, and then when I was, you know, in school, I was, I was in very Anglo-centric um, environment. So I was the wog <laughs> and I got bullied for being the wog and not pretty enough and not skinny enough. And um, my friend was an Aboriginal girl and, you know, we were probably, you know, the others. Um, and so we got a lot of attention for being not quite right. So that's that's been my history and I felt that intently and my wogness, my cultural otherness has always been part of that it's been really difficult I found it really difficult to navigate in between those spaces because I wasn't quite right in the Italian space and I wasn't quite right in the non-Italian space or the Anglo-centric space so yeah that's why there's an affinity for me with um, the sense of what it must feel like to be othered um, and othered for, for generations which is what's happened with First Nations peoples and and the silence around that and there's an affinity and appreciation and also a passion to, we've got to make this better, mm. you know. Um, I've been teaching for a long time, been in education for a long time, and there are, we've got to change it because mm. it's just um, the suicide um, statistics around Aboriginal communities. Um, what happens is often people personalise that as if that's an issue for the Aboriginal or Indigenous communities. Um but it's, I, I think it's, it's about society overall. It, it, it is, from my, from my perspective, um, really about the history of Australia. And again, silence. Until we come to terms with that catastrophe, I don't think as a society we're going to really come to terms with what exclusion means um, and what difference means and what connectedness is available to us if we really want to go there. Yeah, and, and, you know, I completely and totally agree with that. But I think, you know, otherness still exists not only from a historical context but also from a current context as well. So now we've got um, other nations coming here to find refuge, like the Tamil community and, and the South Sudanese community and others, and they're experiencing the same thing that you experienced, this disconnect of growing up between two cultures and an inability to navigate that and a feeling of being on the outside of what it means to be multicultural Australian. So yeah. it's a difficult and complex time oh, for people. Absolutely. Look, there's just been, you know, because of immigration, waves and waves. So there's different waves. And so the, the most recent gets, you know, gets hit the most. So, you know, obviously um, my family came out here in the 1930s through my maternal side of things. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the Greeks and the Italians received the, the fury of that, that, of the otherness, you know, and a, a lot of those stories were silence. You know, a lot of my grandfather's generation and those before him took to the grave um, some of the stuff that they experienced. They just didn't talk about it. Um, we started to resurface it before they passed on. Um, so the silence around it means that those stories can't be told and what it effectively does is, um, I suppose, maintain um, 
racism in this country and, you know, what happens is over the generations, um, so you have the Vietnamese, Lebanese, etc., etc., and so the Italians and the the Greeks may not feel the brunt of it as much as any as say the current Sudanese, um, but it still exists. And the interesting thing happens is that you might have um, the Wogs who and Dagos who were really bullied, being the bullies. Of the Sudanese, you know, who are the you know the latest, um, and that's because by doing that, they're positioning the Sudanese as others. You see how the system works, mm. right? So um, there's a for me there's a hierarchy, um, and in my interpretation in this country is that as you've got this generation of migrations happening, you keep getting um, the, the most recent being the bottom or second to the bottom of the, the hierarchy. The top of the hierarchy is um, white, Anglo, Protestant. And if you look at our history, there are reasons for that. And that still exists. You've got thing that happens in Adelaide, the Adelaide Club and its influences. While that's changed slightly, it's still there. There is the elite. But the thing that we don't like to talk about in this country is, you know, the, the Sudanese are the latest, but their um, experience of otherness is still above, positioned above those of First Nations. Mm. The First Nations communities still experience the full brunt of their otherness. Everything else is sliced, kind of, or positioned or laid above them. We, we still position... Um, Aboriginal people um, and Indigenous communities as the most other. Mm. <clears throat> Your brother felt uh, like he was another. You felt like you were another. Your family felt like they were another. Many people feel that they are an other. And as we said from the outset, we all have the capacity to be an other in a particular social or macro environment. What are we got to do about that? What's your view on how society needs to shift the way that it thinks and therefore the way that it behaves when it comes to inclusiveness? Yeah, I think the first step is to talk about it, you know, and to actually accept that this is part of our history and part of our reality. Because while I have been othered, I still have the same propensity as anyone else to other. And it's something that happens in our society because we all want to fit in don't we and so you know we have to be careful about how am I implicated do I other you know as far as the arena of suicide prevention I'm not hearing the issues of identity and othering um, being explicitly addressed from my perspective um, all those people that I know who've taken their life you know, my brother, um, students, um, including Aboriginal students um, and Aboriginal people that I know, and we know that it's much more prevalent there. I think a way of contributing to the arena is to, you know, to actually inquire into how does othering and identity uh, feature and factor? Because what society tends to do and what we tend to do is personalise it too much from my perspective. And so when you're positioned as other, you're also positioned as the problem. It's your problem. It's your family's problem or it's your problem. 
And when I've been working with young people, I see the impacts of when they're othered, when they're told they're not good enough, pretty enough, colour enough, too much colour and not enough colour, whatever it is, when you're not enough, you're told and you're given messages day in, day out that you're not okay, um, you're not smart enough, you don't... Um, you, you don't have the abilities enough, you know, you're different, you're autistic, whatever it is that you are. It's uh, all of those areas, you're around gender, race, ethnicity, religion sometimes, but ability, so if you have disabilities, again, disabilities, always referenced in terms of what we decide is normal. I mean, what is normal? Who says what is normal? The issue for me is that because we don't like to go there, I have seen the impact and experienced the impact, including my own son, who takes on that message. And that's the tragedy of it. And I have done that too. Because when I was told I was other, I believed it. You take it on. And so my message is to all those people who feel othered, don't take it on. You're not necessarily the, the problem. Um, and it's you know, it's convenient to position other people as the problem because then we don't get to look at ourselves. And those people who've never felt other, well, I reckon they'd only be about 1%. But I think we need to talk about othering and we need to talk about where we are in that and what am I doing that might be, you know, excluding other people or hurting them. But if you don't feel that othering exists or if you don't feel that all the forms of, othering exists like sexism, racism, etc. Um, then maybe you're part of that problem. And maybe we need to start talking about that. I think there is a, a new way forward. And the, the thing for me is in positioning people as other, what we also do is fragment mm. society. Mm. And I think we, going back to the start and, and that experience that I had when my brother died, I think we're beginning through science and other areas to understand that all of creation is interconnected, interrelated, as I said, and interdependent. And what othering does is fragment us. It disconnects. It destroys. It doesn't provide creativity. It destroys relationships instead of creating connection. And I think that's the big tragedy of it all because I think... If we honestly look at identity and society and the way communities work, then we realise that this isn't just about that family or that person. This is actually about all of us. Mm, and it's I, humanity. Absolutely. It's mm. our... It's This happens to all of us. Mm, and right. at the moment it looks like <clears throat> and feels like for me that it happens to them. Yeah. It's not them. It's us. And what are we going to do about it? Mm. And, you know, I just... It's, it's quite tragic for me to see schooling systems still operating out of, you know, well-intentioned, but they, they, they were set up out of an industrial model which was very much about individualisation and fragmenting and, and, and in the experiences of my son who has suicide ideation. Um, and when he tells me of his stories of recess and lunchtime are the horror times for him where he's isolated, where he, he feels totally disconnected. And to think that that still happens, it just absolutely, my heart breaks. Mm. My heart breaks. And that 
because he feels he's being positioned as different and other and unusual and not quite right, that then he takes that on and then he turns that inwards and he he violates himself as a result of that. Yeah, it's quite tragic, yeah. The loss of anyone to suicide is a great tragedy, um, but the gift that your brother has given to you is this wisdom and insight that you've brought to us today and we're very grateful for that. Uh, we need to think about the message that you've given us. Uh, we need to think about our capacity to other others. Uh, we need to think about whether or not we're part of the problem. And we need to think about reaching out uh, so that our, our world's about belonging, not about othering. And um, thank you for being so candid and open with your message today on Rose's Radio. And uh, we've really appreciated all of the wisdom and insight you've brought to the discussion. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Because you to be heard if silence keeps you I I will break it for you in conclusion we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives we need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning if you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25 offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.